Let's pray. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us. Jesus, we have uh, worshipped You this morning. And just what an amazing thing it is that uh, we can worship You. We can say how great You are. Tell You how worthy You are. And as we do so, our hearts are lifted up. What grace, what mercy You have given us. And we can do that. We sang that no power, there's no power in hell, no power that can stand before the great I am. And yet you allow us to come to your throne by the blood of Christ. We just thank you and praise you that we can do that. Father, what a gracious, what a loving God you are. We just pray you would uh, guide our thoughts now as we look into your word. We pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, reveal your truth to us. Help us to comprehend it and help us to be changed by it. Help us to become more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to be speaking from primarily Luke chapter 19. You want to turn there? Luke chapter 19, I'm going to be starting in verse 28. And it also wouldn't hurt if you have a slip of paper or something to stick it in Psalm 118. Psalm 118. So I got Luke 19 and Psalm 118. And if you want extra credit, <clears throat> stick another piece of paper in Habakkuk 2. And maybe you'll find that by the time the sermon is over. But it's in there. It's in there. First Luke 19. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired account of the historical event that we're commemorating today, Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry was part of God's sovereign plan that led to Jesus' arrest and His crucifixion. And that was all part of God's plan for Jesus to die for us so that we might be reconciled to God. The plan involved Jesus coming into conflict with the religious leaders of the day. And the conflict arose by Jesus answering a question that his followers had asked about a year and a half earlier, the day he calmed the storm of the Sea of Galilee. Having witnessed Jesus silence the howling wind and flatten the surging waves, they had asked, Who is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who is this? Who is Jesus? This day on his entry into Jerusalem and the days that followed, Jesus answered this question. Who am I? Who am I? I am Messiah. I am King. I am God. Let's read Luke's account, starting in verse 28. After he had said these things, He's going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on, <clears throat> on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on, on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city 
and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. As he approaches the city, a crowd has gathered. In a parallel account, John makes it clear the crowd is large. The large crowd, John says, who had come to celebrate the Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout. Why are they gathered? Luke tells us they have come to praise God joyfully for all the miracles, the works of power that they had seen. The people had heard how Jesus had cleansed lepers, given sight to the blind, and more than that, John tells us in chapter 12 of his gospel that they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus had raised a dead man, and the people wanted to see him. People recognized these miracles as acts of God. They responded with energy. As Luke says, they were uh, shouting joyfully and giving praise to God. But not all of the people are on the same page. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they objected to the crowd's impromptu worship concert. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, as we read, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why do the Pharisees ask Jesus to rebuke the disciples? The short answer is this. They did not recognize Jesus for who he is. They repudiated, they refused to accept Jesus' authority, and they rejected him. Who is Jesus? The Pharisees' answer was opposite Jesus' answer. The Pharisees would have said, he's not the Messiah, he's not our king, and he's certainly not our God. God's purpose in the triumphal entry is to show who Jesus is. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders, they refuse to receive the message. See, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the teachers, for their part, are convinced that life consists of their holding positions of authority. Their perspective in simple terms is, it's all about us, it's all about me. Jesus, on the other hand, insists, guys, it's all about me. Whose perspective is true? If truth be truth, it ought to be something reliable, right? Something dependable, something solid. We often speak of facts as being cold and hard, like a rock. So this morning, I thought we'd, we'd look to the rocks in this story for insights into the truth. I thought we'd listen to rocks speak. What's that, you say? You've never heard rocks speak? You've heard a rubber band, haven't you? I bet you even heard a diamond ring. This morning, you're going to hear stones talk. Did you notice there were two references to stones in the story? In verse 40, Jesus says that if the people remained silent, the stones would cry out. That's reference one. And then in verse 44, Jesus says that one day not one stone of Jerusalem will be left upon another. And there's one more reference to a stone. It's in verse 17 of chapter 20, if you would keep reading. It's in a part of the story we'll read in a few minutes where Jesus speaks of the cornerstone. Now these stones don't ever say a single word, but these stones carry an unmistakable and life-altering testimony that we all, all need to hear. They testify to who Jesus is. They tell us that Jesus is Messiah, they tell us Jesus is king. They tell us that Jesus is God. The first stones that testify to the identity of Jesus are the stones along the way. The stones that Jesus said would cry out if the disciples became silent. Who is Jesus? These stones tell us Jesus is Messiah. We, quote-unquote, hear them speak when Jesus answers the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answers with, I tell you, if these 
If these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, why did the religious leaders want the people to stop praising God for the works of power that Jesus had been performing? It's not because they're praising God. That's not the problem. It's because of how they are praising God. It's because of the words that they were shouting. They were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That first line is a rephrasing of verse 26 of Psalm 118. As I said, we're going to look at Psalm 118 briefly. Psalm 118 is a celebration of the salvation of God. In parts, it cries out to God for aid. And then there are other parts where it answers back and celebrates God's answer to those cries. I'm just going to read a few verses, uh, kind of jump down there, starting in verse 6. We see the psalmist saying, From my distress I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. Down to verse 13, I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 17, I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. Verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalm is a celebration of God's salvation. So why do the Pharisees object? It's because by referencing Psalm 118, the people are welcoming Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, the one anointed by God to save them. For us to appreciate this, I wanted to look at two things. First, notice that the crowd is not quoting the psalm quite word for word. They're not saying, blessed is the one who comes. They've swapped out a word. Did you notice? They're shouting, blessed is the king who comes. And this is huge. Psalm 118 is not just a personal cry for salvation. It's a, it's a national cry. And the salvation that it celebrates is a deliverance of Israel from surrounding nations. So particularly because Judea was, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, governed by an occupying nation, that's Rome, the Jewish people celebrating Jesus as the king come to save them in the name of the Lord is making Jesus out to be the prophesied anointed one promised to save the nation. The people are claiming Jesus to be their national Messiah. And this title carries with it God's seal of approval and authority. And this is where the Pharisees cry, Foul! They do not recognize Jesus' authority, and they certainly do not receive him as Messiah. Second, there's a, there's a link to Psalm 118 that must have just grated on the Pharisees' ears. Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew, Mark, and John all record the people shouting as we sang today, Hosanna. That word Hosanna is also from Psalm 118. It's in verse 25. You might not have noticed it because it appears in English as, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. That's Hosanna. A word-for-word -word translation would be just simply, do save, or save now, exclamation mark. In Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so you'll have to forgive me, it's something like Hoshia na. It has two parts, Hoshia and Na. The Na means now, and it's an interjection. So it's appropriate to think of it as having an exclamation mark after it. It's something that would be appropriate to shout. In other words, we need you now. Save us now, God. But what really caught my attention as I was studying was that the first part of that word, Hosanna, the Hoshia part, it's the imperative form of the word Yasha, and it means deliver or saves. And get this, it shares its roots with the name Joshua. That was Jesus' name. Jesus is a Greek form of Joshua or Jeshua, or more correctly, Yeshua. Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. And here's the thing, shouting Hosanna, Hoshiana, is almost like, almost like shouting Yeshuana. Very similar, and they come from the same roots. So in other words, the crowd is not too far off from, say, from shouting, Jesus, now! Jesus! Exclamation mark! Shouting Jesus 
with an exclamation mark after it, is to declare that God is salvation. And if you look at Psalm 118, verse 14, it says, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. And Psalm 118, 21 says, I shall give thanks to you, Lord, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. That's the, that phrase, you have become my salvation, the Lord has become my salvation, it contains Jesus' name, actually, in the Hebrew, right in there. So as the people are shouting, Hosanna, as Jesus arrives, they're welcoming Jesus as the one who comes in the name of the Lord to bring salvation, and they're referencing this psalm that says that God has become salvation. Jesus is here to save us. That's really what the people are shouting. Jesus is the one sent by God to save us. And if we follow Psalm 118 to its logical con conclusion, really what's being declared here is that Jesus is God. God has become our salvation. Jesus is God come to save us. So the Pharisees objected. They objected because they saw Jesus as a usurper of their authority. Right? After all, wasn't it their role as the religious leaders and teachers of the day to be the authority? If God were going to save his people, wouldn't it be through their teaching and through their leadership? So they objected because they refused to recognize Jesus' authority to take on that role. And some might have also grasped this, what otherwise would be a, a blasphemy implication that Jesus is God come to save his people. So they say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop. The Pharisees' criticism of the crowd is hard. But Jesus' response is harder still because Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. What does Jesus mean by this? The image that first comes to my mind is a, is a Romans 1.20 concept that God's divine nature is clearly understood through what he has made. In other words, God doesn't need words to declare his truth. In 1 Chronicles 16, it says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. God doesn't need people to sing his praises. All creation already sings his praises. Creation is a declaration of his glory. And when people join in the chorus of all creation, they are just fulfilling their God-given purpose to glorify him and to enjoy him. But before man even came on the scene, creation sang his praise. And today, when everyone is asleep, the crickets and the spring peepers and the moon and the stars still sing his praise. And in places where there are no people, in the dark depths of the oceans, in the remotest rainforests, atop the highest mountains, and the farthest reaches of space, his eternal power and his divine nature are testified to day by day, moment by moment, without a single word being said. So God doesn't need people. He doesn't even need words. The myriad songs of his praise are sung in the sounds and the silence of the universe he made. The stones along the way, then, had they remained silent, would have testified nonetheless to the glory of God. But had the people been silent, would the stones along the way have literally cried out that Jesus was the Messiah? That's what Jesus said, so I'm going with yes. I have no doubt that the God who made all things, who gave sounds to all living creatures that have a voice, he who gave us indeed ears to hear, and he who actually made water pour out of a desert rock, he most certainly could draw shouts of praise from silent stone. But there's more to Jesus' comment that the stones would cry out. There's a reference to Habakkuk 2, verse 11, where it says, Surely the stone will cry out from the wall. The phrase comes as part of a warning. I'm reading verse, starting in verse 9 of Habakkuk 2. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. The context here in Habakkuk 2 is God 
speaking to rich leaders who are oppressing the poor. They're enriching themselves by evil means to build for themselves stone houses and comfortable lives while the poor whom they have cheated are cut off, left without shelter and exposed to the elements and to danger. And the scriptures say the very stones of the houses of the rich cry out in testimony against those who've elevated themselves at the expense of others. Doesn't this seem an apt metaphor for the Pharisees? They, they elevated themselves. They devised a religious a regime that made it impossible for everyday folk to comply. They promoted themselves and used their position to advantage to live the life of the rich and the powerful while they cut off the common people from entering in. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for these very things. You can see in Matthew 23 where he says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And they love being called rabbi by men. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Jesus' reference to the stones crying out is a rebuke of the Pharisees. The stones along the way are like the stones of the houses of the rich in Habakkuk. The stones know what you're up to, Jesus is saying. They've been here watching your comings and your goings. If these people who are testifying to my authority as Messiah were to be silent, these stones along the way would rise up and condemn you as false teachers who puff themselves up and mislead the people so that they are shut off of the kingdom of heaven. Though silent, the testimony of the stones is loud and clear. The Pharisees are leading the people to destruction. The Messiah is leading the people to salvation. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Messiah. God in flesh come to save his people. The stones know it. All creation knows it, and the Pharisees deny it, and they're trying to suppress it. The second stones that testify to the identity of Jesus are the stones of Jerusalem. Who is Jesus? The stones of Jerusalem testify that Jesus is king. These stones are mentioned in verse 44 of Luke 19, which we read earlier. Starting in verse 43, For the days will come upon you, Jesus says to the city of Jerusalem, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he approaches an architectural spectacle of mighty walls, shining palaces, and a sprawling temple complex. The gleam of the white walls and the gold adornments of the temple atop the temple mount would have caught Jesus' eye across the Kidron Valley as he descended the slope of the Mount of Olives. And seeing the city, Scripture says, Jesus weeps. To the eyes of man, it was a wonder of the ancient world. But to Jesus, it is a whitewashed tomb. He has some harsh words here for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the name means city of peace. But the city of peace does not know the things that make for peace, he says. In fact, there will be no peace. Catastrophe is coming. You will, be, you will be besieged, leveled to the ground, not a stone left one upon another, and your children slaughtered. And why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize me. How harsh is that? Imagine if I knocked on your, at your door this afternoon and I asked if I could visit for a while. Now imagine you're in the middle of something, maybe a home improvement project, maybe you're doing your taxes, it's, yeah, it's getting there, right? Uh, maybe you're doing something you'd set aside <clears throat> the afternoon to do and you really need, needed to get it done today. So I knock at your door and you say, I'm sorry, Nick, I'd really like to visit, but could we do it another time? I'd say, okay, I understand. How about if we meet for lunch at Chick-fil-A on Tuesday? 
And you'd say, great, and I'd leave, and we'd see each other Tuesday, your treat, and that would, that would be that. But imagine instead of me knocking, that it's the President of the United States. And it's not a surprise. His office has been in communication with you for months to plan this visit. They told you when he'd be there, uh, sorry, they told you when he'd be there, they told you that he'd be accompanied by a diplomatic envoy. They even sent secret service agents to visit ahead of time to prepare the way. And the president is not coming to socialize. He's on urgent business. You see, you are a representative of a government that's declared war on the United States. And the U.S. Armed Forces is planning an assault on all land on U.S. soil occupied by your government, including your house. The president is coming in an unprecedented display of diplomatic humility to present you the terms of a peace treaty, a plan that would save you and thousands from destruction. So at the appointed time, the presidential motorcade rolls in and the Secret, uh, Secret Service agents escort the president and diplomats to your door. Just as you've been told, there's a knock at the door. Someone says, the president of the United States... And you're like, who? Never heard of him. Get these people off my lawn. And you slam the door. At that point, the president says, because you didn't recognize me, you have rejected my peace plan. The army's going to surround your house and level to the ground. It will come crashing down on all of you, and there'll be no escape. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, humble and riding on a donkey on a peace mission. He's the Prince of Peace, riding in not on a war horse, but on a donkey, a symbol of peace. He's come to a world at war with God to announce the way to peace. He's come to reconcile man to God. He's come just as God had announced 500 years earlier through the prophet Zechariah. We can read in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But the Pharisees, leaders and teachers, most of them anyway, have refused to accept the prophecy as referring to Jesus. They've refused to accept Jesus as the one chosen to save them. And the crowd, for their part, Though they are now shouting, blessed is the king, before the week is over, they too will reject him and will call for his execution. And here's the thing. He is the king. He alone has the plan to save them. He alone has the words of life. But the people wind up slamming the door in his face. It grieves his heart. He weeps over Jerusalem because he knows they will reject him. And he knows what's going to happen because of it. Your city will be destroyed. Your children slaughtered and not one stone left upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize me. That's pretty heavy. And in human terms, it, it sounds vindictive. It sounds like, okay, if you're going to be that way, fine. You rejected me. You hurt my feelings. We'll see how you like it when fire rains down out of heaven and the world comes to an end. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's simply stating the facts. Those who reject the king have rejected the king. To be separated from the king is to be lost in this world and for eternity. C.S. Lewis wrote, there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, who dwell in his presence. And those to whom God says, thy will be done, who are forever separated from him. See, Jesus is greater than the President of the United States. In Luke 11, Jesus says of himself, something greater than Jonah is here. You know the story of Jonah. He went to Nineveh, a city that was in rebellion against God. And Jonah preached that destruction was coming. And the people recognized the words of God that Jonah spoke. And they repented, and God spared them. But something greater than Jonah has come to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem did not repent. 
The men of Jonah, uh, sorry, the men of Nineveh, Jesus says, will stand up with this generation, generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You, Jerusalem, have chosen to remain at war with the king of the universe, and so you are lost. And as the king of the universe, Jesus is predicting the future, a future that should stand as a warning to all who would reject the king. It's a physical illustration of a spiritual reality. Those who do not recognize the king are doomed to a forever separated from the king. The city will be destroyed, Jesus says, barricaded, surrounded, and leveled to the ground. And if you know your history, you know what happened. About 37 years later, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans. Actually, I, I read that the siege began on this day, April 14th. That would be 1,949 years ago. Four legions surrounded Jerusalem, a grand total of as many as 44,000 troops. The siege lasted four months. Emperor Titus had a wall built to blockade the city to starve out the population. Barricaded and surrounded, just as Jesus said. Eventually, the city walls were breached, and the historian Josephus records that as the legions charged in, the slaughter of the unarmed citizens was gruesome. Caesar gave orders that they should demolish the entire city and temple, but that they should leave the wall that enclosed the city on the west side. This wall was spared, but for all the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground. Listen to this. The wall was so thoroughly laid even with the ground that there was left nothing to make those who came thither believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Had anyone who had known the place before come to it now, he would not have known it. Though he were at the city itself, yet he would have asked, where is it? The temple, the palaces, all the freestanding walls were leveled to the ground, just as Jesus said. Stones were not left one upon another. Some might object, what about the western wall? Turns out the western wall was, was left standing. It was is part of a retaining wall that actually held up earth. It wasn't a freestanding wall. Herod had built this to uh, contain uh, extra ground that he was dumping in there. To he had this grandiose temple plaza that he constructed. Needed some extra space for that. These were the only stones that were left upon each other. Even these stones and the toppled stones of Jerusalem testify to the totality of the, of the destruction. And the testimony is this. Jesus is king. He who comes in the name of the Lord he was not one among many messiahs. He was the true one, the only one. I am the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus is saying. I am the Lord who has become salvation. You did not recognize me. You did not recognize my authority as king to make peace. And so, destruction has come upon you. Who is Jesus? The stones along the way testify that Jesus is messiah. Then the, sto the stones of Jerusalem testified that Jesus is king. There's one final stone we need to listen to today. <clears throat> it's the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone testifies that Jesus is God. Now this stone is not a physical stone, but a metaphorical one. It was not mentioned in the story of the triumphal entry. But if you look over to Luke 20, verse 17, you'll see that Jesus mentions the chief cornerstone a day or so after his triumphal entry during one of his teaching sessions at the temple. The scene is this. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are confronting Jesus in the temple. Tell us, they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? And part of Jesus' answer is to tell them this parable. I'm going to read Luke 20, starting in in verse 9, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers 
so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the, ta- will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus asks. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. <clears throat> Jesus spoke this parable against the Jewish religious leaders. And Luke tells us that they knew it. You look in verse 19, a couple verses down. They knew he spoke the parable against him. them. The religious leaders, they're the vine growers. God is the man who planted the vineyard. The vineyard is Israel, and God had entrusted Israel to the religious leaders. They were to tend Israel on God's behalf, to lead Israel as God's stewards. How are they supposed to lead? By giving God his due. What is due God? Worship, praise, honor, love, ascribing to him all power and authority. But the leaders refused to give God his due. Yes, they studied and taught the scriptures. Yes, they observed the ritual laws. Yes, they prayed in public. Yes, they gave their tithes and their offerings. But they did all of these things not out of a heart of worship to God. They did these things to be noticed by others. They didn't do these things because they loved God. They did these things because they loved the title teacher and they loved the places of honor and the best seats and the respectful greetings and being called teacher. Bottom line, they wanted the vineyard for themselves. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to be at the center. They wanted to be on the throne. God had given them Moses and the law. God had sent them prophet after prophet, calling them to humble themselves before him. God had sent John the Baptist to call them to repent. And historically, we know that Israel failed to recognize the message and the authority of God's prophets. They complained against them, rejected them, even beat and killed them. At the last, God had sent Jesus, his beloved son. Perhaps, said God, they will respect him. When the vine growers saw the son, what they said to themselves is quite revealing in the parable. This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. The leaders wanted the vineyard for themselves. They they wanted the authority. They didn't really want to worship. They wanted to be worshipped. So, though they knew in their hearts who the true heir was, they refused to recognize him as such. And what will happen? Jesus says that God will come and destroy the religious leaders and give the riches of his inheritance to someone else. God would take away from the priests and the elders the privilege of leading the people in worship? May it never be, they say in verse 16. May it never be. Then Jesus comes with this response, starting in verse 17. It says, but Jesus looked. The word for looked here is not a simple just took a look at. It's stared or looked at with a locked-in, concentrated gaze. Jesus, Jesus' love. I'm sure there was love in that gaze. I love you. But Jesus is also truth. And with that gaze, Jesus was confronting the, their error and the, their self-centeredness and their pride. I love you, but you need to hear what I am saying. I love you, but you need to submit to my authority. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When Jesus says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, 
He's quoting again, Psalm 118. The same psalm that we, we referenced earlier that says, Blessed is the one who came, comes in the name of the Lord and says, Hosanna. Jesus is bringing the Pharisees and the scribes and teachers right back to the triumphal entry. Right back to where we started. In Psalm 118, it's verse 22 that says, The stone that the builders rejected. That refers to David probably. It was David who was initially overlooked when the prophet Samuel went to choose a king from among the eight sons of Jesse. David was the youngest. He was so far out of contention for consideration for king. He wasn't even invited inside from tending the family's flocks when the prophet Samuel came to choose Israel's next king. The stone also refers to the nation of Israel. David identifies with Israel. Israel was fewest in number of all peoples, the Bible tells us, and easily overlooked among the nations of the world. But God chose Israel. Now Jesus is saying, I am the cornerstone. That the stone was rejected connects this stone with the, the, with the parable that he just told. Just as the vine growers rejected the son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, even so the religious teachers and leaders are refusing to recognize the authority of Jesus and they will cast him out and kill him. But we know that David, the stone which was rejected, was used by God to reclaim the monarchy from wayward Saul and bring Israel back to God. Israel, the stone which was rejected, was used by God to judge many nations, to punish them for their idol worship, child sacrifice, violence, and immorality. But Jesus is greater than David, and Jesus is greater than the nation of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament symbols. Jesus has become the chief cornerstone. And the, in the first century, that cornerstone was the first stone laid during construction of a building. Every other stone in the building was placed with reference to the cornerstone to ensure that the building went up straight. So every stone was measured by the standard of the cornerstone. When the teachers and leaders responded to Jesus' parable about the vine growers with shock, may it never be, Jesus' answer that he is the cornerstone just turns the shock dial up to 11. Jesus is clearly saying that he is the son, the one rejected, and the one rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. The one rejected becomes the standard against which everything else is measured. Jesus is the standard against which everything is measured. How you respond to me, Jesus is telling them, is what you will be judged by. The parable ends with the man who owned the vineyard coming and destroying those who rejected his son. And so Jesus is saying, receive me as Messiah and King, honor me as the authority, or you will be destroyed. But it's even more than that because Jesus the stone is not just the standard against which everything is measured. He's also the one who does the judging. In the parable, the man who owns the vineyard comes and destroys the rebellious vine growers. But when Jesus brings up the rejected cornerstone that becomes the chief cornerstone, he adds this in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus is not only the standard by which all are judged, he is the judge himself. He's not merely a Messiah and king. He's not merely a representative of the authority of God on earth. He is the chief cornerstone. He is God himself. And everyone, not just the crowd gathered around him that day, not just the city or Jerusalem, but the entire world, everyone around the globe and across all time, will be judged by him according to their response to him. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, John tells us. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Peter knew this. When Peter was arrested and questioned about the miracles and preaching he was doing in the early days of the church, he was asked, By what power or in what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, in Acts 4.11, said this, Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, religious leaders, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And then he says, 
There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Either you're saved by him or you're lost. And so I say the message of the chief cornerstone is that Jesus is God. The chief cornerstone, not only the standard by which all will be judged, but also the judge of all. So the stones have cried out this morning. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is King. Jesus is God. The stones have cried out and the question is, are we listening? I think it's easy for us to sit back and criticize the Jewish rulers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. They rejected Jesus' authority. But having looked at the word, we need to ask ourselves, have we rejected Jesus' authority? The message of the cornerstone is that he is God, the standard and the judge. Have we fully recognized how far short of God's standard we fall? Have we bent our knees to the authority of Jesus as the one who will judge us? The message of the stones of Jerusalem, Jesus is king. Have we recognized that Jesus is king and that judgment is assured? On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode humbly on a donkey. But a day is coming when he will come in power. As John saw in the Revelation, Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His name is called the Word of God, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just as surely as the stones of Jerusalem testify that the Word of Jesus is true, so surely will Jesus return and judgment will come upon us. Have we fully acknowledged the implications of this truth? Judgment is coming, and we, should we reject the king, like the walls of Jerusalem, are doomed to fall. It is imperative that we not reject Jesus' authority, that we not pridefully insist that we, not he, are at the center of our worlds, the center of our stories, the center of our truth. It is imperative that we instead humble ourselves before him, and acknowledge that he is before all things, that he has first place in everything, that he created all things, that all things are held together by him, and that all the fullness of God dwells in him. And it is imperative that we acknowledge that it is only through him, only through his shed blood for us on the cross, that we can be reconciled to God and escape his wrath. And finally, the message of the stones along the way, Jesus is Messiah. The good news is that he is Messiah, the anointed one to save us. And so this morning when we say Hosanna, there's an added meaning. Because as soon as the word Hosanna, O Lord, do save, we beseech you, has passed our lips, we know that the Lord has become our salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in in 1 Corinthians 2, your word says that none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if, if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers, the Pharisees, the teachers, the elders, Jesus, they crucified you because they did not understand. And they did not understand because an unspiritual man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They did not understand because they did not have your spirit in them. God, there are those here this morning who, like the rulers, do not recognize your authority. Maybe they don't understand who you are. Maybe they refuse to, refuse to acknowledge who you are. God, apart from you, none of us understands There is none who understands, none who seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Apart from you, Lord, we are blinded by our pride. We are all enamored with ourselves. Either either we're puffing ourselves up, insisting on our rights, and proving that we're better, or at least not as bad as our neighbor, or we're locked in dungeons of self-pity, focused on our faults and failures, 
Either way, we've put ourselves at the center of our story. We've made ourselves king of our hearts. And we've made ourselves the measure of all things, the judge of all. But Jesus, you are the center of the story. You are the king of our hearts. You are the measure of all things. And you are the judge of all. God, if there is someone here today who has not acknowledged these truths, who has not bended their knee, I pray that you would give them new minds that they might understand. Give them new hearts that they might believe. Grant to them the humility to humble themselves before you, to renounce their pride, to lay their faults and failures at the foot of the cross. May they repent of their sins and confess you, Jesus, as Lord, and believe that you are who you said you are, that you are the only way, that there is salvation in no one else. And for those of us who know you, God, this morning, for those of us who have bent our knee and hailed you as King and God and trusted in you as Messiah, we humble ourselves before you afresh this morning. We confess that we know and understand and love your truth because and only because you have put your Holy Spirit in us. It is through the Spirit that you reveal your truth to us and so we confess that we see only because you have opened our eyes. We understand only because you have enlightened our minds. We love only because you have loved us. We believe only because you have granted us faith. We are what we are only by your grace. And so we pray, renew in us this morning a spirit of humility. Keep us ever on our knees before you. And teach us also to recognize that a spirit of humility is not a spirit of retreat. Jesus, you are God. You have called us to go and make disciples of all peoples. Jesus, you are king. And you have called us to teach obedience to you to the ends of the earth. Jesus, you are Messiah. And you have called us to shout your hosannas to the remotest places of the earth. God, we don't want the stones to cry out. We want to be your witnesses in our families, in our schools, in our places of employment, in our nation, and to the world. Jesus, all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. Teach us humility in the face of this truth, but also teach us boldness to stand on the power of this truth. May we be bold because we stand on the firm foundation of the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen.